the problem is that meat consumption is going up, not down. And so per capita demand for meat in the United States, in India, in China, in Brazil, it's going up in all these places. People want meat. They don't necessarily care if it comes from animals or from plants or from fermentation. They want the experience of enjoying meat. And that is why I think we're able to get into a position like what my company, The Better Meat Code, does to offer people the meat experience in a way that is just dramatically more resource effective than trying to raise and slaughter all these animals. We think, oh, if you're an environmentalist, well, turn the light off when you leave the room or take a shorter shower. But really, among the best things that we can do is simply to eat fewer animals. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. With the growing impact on the planet by the meat industry, there has been a push to reduce meat in our diets now more than ever. Several plant-based meat startups like Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger have sprung up and are doing really, really well. On our show, we have one such brand, Better Meat Co. Paul Shapiro, at the age of 13, told his parents that he wanted to become a vegetarian, not a very popular lifestyle in the 1980s. Every meal Paul ate till that point in time had some sort of meat. He began his journey to reduce the consumption of meat on the planet, first by lobbying for better farm and agricultural practices, then writing a book and giving talks about it. He soon realized that convincing people to give up meat on the basis of animal cruelty and its impact on our planet just wasn't working. It wasn't sufficient. People had to be offered a better, comparable, cheaper alternative to stop eating meat. He founded the Better Meat Co. that grows and harvests plant-based meat by fermenting rhizas, which are mycoprotein, protein made from fungi. Using age-old fermentation techniques and the Better Meat Company offers a plant-based meat with the taste and texture of meat. If you're a meat lover committed to a healthy, sustainable lifestyle, this episode is for you. Today, we have with us Paul Shapiro, CEO of Better Meat Company, plant proteins for a better planet. He joins us from Sacramento, California. Welcome, Paul. Well, thanks, Vidya. It's so nice to be with you. The livestock industry contributes to about 14% of all man-made greenhouse gases globally. If we had to analyze that percentage, which livestock would you say is the biggest contributor? So let's just be clear that raising animals for food is a driving factor in wildlife extinction, deforestation, climate change, and more. And so if you're only looking at greenhouse gas emissions, then the cattle sector is a big driver. But if you're looking at everything, so if you're looking at pandemic risk, if you're looking at deforestation, it's clear that you don't want to focus just on the cattle industry. You want to focus on all of animals raised for food. Because as an example, when you take tens of thousands of chickens and you can find them in a warehouse where there's no windows and they're living wing to wing in their own feces, which is the way that we produce most chicken meat, 
you create massive risk, risk for pandemic, risk for disease, risk for antibiotic resistance, and more. How do they contribute to the greenhouse gases? Is it because what they're fed or they are kept in these crowded areas? How do they contribute to our climate problem? Well, in a number of ways. So, for example, first and foremost, cattle produce a lot of methane, and methane is an extremely potent greenhouse gas. But in addition to that, if you think about, let's say, we're raising billions of chickens, and they're all eating, and the food that they are grown, the soy or the corn that they're grown, has to be grown somewhere. And usually that means on land that used to be a forest. So the number one cause for deforestation in the Amazon rainforest is clearing uh, land to either provide pasture land for cattle or to provide uh, cropland to feed farm animals like chickens and pigs and cattle. So those are really two of the key drivers is the, the emissions that come from the animals' bodies themselves and the deforestation associated with animal agriculture. So do you think if we all moved back to smaller local farms away from industrialized farming, we could still eat meat and reduce the impact on the planet? You would have to eat a lot less meat because those type of systems that you are referring to, Vidya, take up a lot of land. So you don't want to have a situation where you want to deforest even more. And so if you want to move to those type of systems of humanity's past, a more pastoral system, you really need to dramatically cut the amount of meat that we eat. And that's fine. I think it would be a great thing to do. The problem is that meat consumption is going up not down. And so per capita demand for meat in the United States, in India, in China, in Brazil, it's going up in all these places. And so we're not going to be able to move back to a time when all animals are on pastures without destroying the planet. So we need to satisfy that meat tooth of humanity without animals. And you bring about a really good point. A friend's father was a well-known agricultural economist. His research was based in India. And on one of his trips in the 1970s, he actually made a documentary where he filmed an Indian family eating a meal without meat. And he's embarrassed about it now. But at that point in time, he actually felt that they had a diet which was not balanced, uh. a diet which was insufficient. This was in the 70s and, you know, the thinking was different. And hence, going forward, people thought the wisdom was... Yes, we should all eat meat to be stronger, to run faster, to be more athletic. And even in economies where it wasn't that prevalent, people started eating far more meat. Yeah, that's been a trend all over the world, not just in India, where people have switched, let's say, from chana masala to tikka masala. <laughs> But also in China, that has been the case. So the Chinese have uh, increased their meat consumption in the last uh, 50 years by fourfold. So it's huge demands. It's not just that there's more humans. It's also that the humans who are here are eating more meat per human. And we have to find ways to feed humanity without destroying the planet. We're not going to be farming the moon. We're not going to be farming Mars. We have only one body to farm, the Earth. And humanity right now is standing at nearly 8 billion people. Within 30 years from now, we're probably going to be at about 10 billion people. So we have to produce a lot more food with far fewer resources. And raising animals for food is simply too inefficient. It's too resource intensive. If we want to eat meat, we're going to have to find ways to produce that experience for people without the animals. Let me play the devil's advocate. There is still a lot of hunger in the world. 
the innovations in farming, the improvements, the technology that the meat industry, the industrialization has helped feed the growing world population. Isn't there some sort of a balance that we can arrive at? There's no doubt that the industrialization of the food supply has dramatically increased the amount of food available to us. The problem is not that we have necessarily industrialized, let's say, rice production or wheat production or soy production. The problem is that when you industrialize animal production, you have such dramatic inefficiencies and you have enormous animal suffering. So when you try to make chickens live in an industrial warehouse, it causes them to suffer. Same thing with pigs or cattle. And so we can't treat animals the way that we treat rice plants, as an example. But independent of the suffering that we cause to these animals, which is vast, these animals simply consume too many resources. Even in an industrial setting, which is more efficient, they still are consuming too many resources. Too much land is needed, too much water is needed, and more. And so in the same way that we need to, let's say, create light without fossil fuels. You know, I'm in a room right now and the light is on and, you know, that light may be coming from coal. It may be coming from oil. It may be coming from solar. It might be coming from wind. But we all know it's just light. We have the same experience of an illuminated room. And it would be better if we could make sure that we got that same experience of an illuminated room but from renewables. Similarly, people want meat. They don't necessarily care if it comes from animals or from plants or from fermentation. They want the experience of enjoying meat. And that is why I think we're able to get into a position like what my company, The Better Meat Code, does to offer people the meat experience in a way that is just dramatically more resource effective than trying to raise and slaughter all these animals. Yeah, and ethics behind raising and slaughtering these animals. Pigs are smarter than even our dogs, right? And we don't have qualms about eating pig, but if there were dogs that were your horse meat, you people would be up in uh, arms about it. You're absolutely right, Vidya. The point that you're making to be affirmed, I would say the following. We treat farm animals worse than we treat the most heinous criminals in our society. We don't take murderers and rapists and put them inside of a prison cell so small that they can't even lift their arms or that they can't even turn around. Yet that is standard practice in the chicken industry and it's standard practice in the pork industry. Millions of animals right now live in factory farms where they can barely move an inch their entire lives. And what crime have they committed? Of course, they've committed no crime except for being born into the wrong species. And we would never treat murderers and rapists like this, let alone dogs or cats, and yet we think it's okay to do if the victims are pigs or chickens. We shouldn't treat anybody like that, especially animals who have done nothing to deserve it. So we can either continue down the path of locking animals in conditions that most of us don't want to hear anything about, or we can divorce animals from the meat production process altogether and create ways that are going to be way more efficient, way more sustainable, and way more humane than what we currently do. You have several TED Talks online, and I heard one of them, and one statistic that you mentioned, it gave me an absolute visual of how much impact even something as small as a chicken has on our water consumption. You said, take this one chicken and pour one gallon of water do that a thousand times. That's just how much water 
that is consumed to raise this one chicken. And also, if you skip one chicken dinner, it is equivalent to not having a shower for six months. Those were like startling figures. They are very startling. And it's a good reminder that we don't see the impact of our food choices. We think, oh, if you're an environmentalist, well, turn the light off when you leave the room or take a shorter shower. But really, among the best things that we can do is simply to eat fewer animals because it takes so many resources, water, land, and more to raise animals for food that if you really want to lighten your footprint on the planet, you start with your food print, not anything else. Your food print is where you begin. And that means eating fewer animals and enjoying more plant-based meals. So are you a vegetarian? I am. And did you grow up as a vegetarian or did life change you? I'd say life changed me, Vidya. When I was 13 years old, I made the decision to become a vegetarian. So I grew up after that age as a vegetarian, but prior I was an extremely heavy meat eater. <laughs> I don't think I had one meal that was vegetarian. I can't remember it. After 13, all my meals became vegetarian. What did your mom have to say? Was she perturbed? I'm assuming this is about 30 or so years ago. Yeah, pretty much exactly that. Not that trendy, you know, 30 years ago to be vegetarian. <laughs> no, it certainly wasn't. But I mean, we knew about vegetarians. For example, I remember knowing at that time that Albert Einstein had been a vegetarian, that Mohandas Gandhi had been a vegetarian. Like I knew that there were vegetarians. I knew that it could be done. And my mom, you know, she's an animal lover. She wasn't a vegetarian then, but she's an animal lover and she got it. My parents were a little bit concerned about my nutrition. And so they asked that oh, we go see a nutritionist. Now there's no Google back then. It's like Yellow Pages. And for those of you too young, Yellow Pages was Google before Google. <laughs> and they got the Yellow Pages and they picked out a nutritionist who was near us and they brought me to her. And just like by divine intervention, it seemed, she happened to be vegetarian herself. So that gave my parents the comfort that they needed to make sure like I wasn't going to be harming myself. Of course, now we know it's actually healthier to eat like that. But back then, 30 years ago, people weren't really so knowledgeable about it. So let's talk about your journey. How did you arrive at being the CEO and founder of Better Meat Company? You know, Vidya, I have spent the last three decades trying to figure out how can reduce humanity's reliance on animals for food. I'm so concerned about it, not only because of the animal cruelty that is involved in making all this food, which is a huge mission for me is to end that, but also it's not sustainable. We just cannot feed humanity doing this. And so I wrote a book on the topic. That book is called Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World. And in that book, I tell the story of the investors the entrepreneurs, the scientists who are all racing to commercialize the world's first slaughter-free meat. And after writing that book, Queen Meat, I had a choice. I could either continue to write about the people who I thought would help solve this problem, or I could become one of those people myself. And I made the latter choice. And so nearly four years ago, I decided to start the Better Meat Co., and create technologies that would make replacing animals in the food chain even more cost-effective and even tastier. So what was your inspiration to write the book? There must have been some triggers. I had spent a good amount of my life as a lobbyist working to try to improve agricultural sustainable policies. And what ended up happening was I thought maybe there is a better way 
maybe rather than trying to change laws, I could simply compete in the market and create products that were better. So think about it like this. We used to write with quill pens and we live plucked geese for those quills. It's a very inhumane practice, but nobody stopped using quill pens because they cared about the geese. They stopped because fountain pens were invented. And once you had a fountain pen, it was an easier way to write than a quill pen. And so the inventor of the fountain pen, despite not caring about geese, liberated geese from being live plucked. Similarly, we used to exploit horses to transport us all around, but we didn't stop exploiting horses because we cared about them. We stopped because we had cars. And the list goes on and on and on. And I thought, Maybe the same is so with farm animals. Maybe we will not stop exploiting farm animals because we care about them, but maybe a new technology will render their exploitation obsolete. And that's why I wrote the book, to explore that idea. I think you spoke somewhere about the same analogy between the fat from the whales made it obsolete because kerosene came on the market and it was so much cheaper and uh, more efficient. Exactly. So if you think about 150 years ago, the white in our homes pretty much came from whale oil. And we slaughtered huge numbers of whales in order to try to provide enough lighting for our society. In the end, though, whales were not liberated from harpoons because anybody cared about whales. They were liberated because kerosene was invented, which created a cheaper, cleaner way to light our homes. And that transition away from whale oil and toward kerosene, away from horses to cars, away from geese to metal fountain pens. There's so many other stories that are like this, where we have stopped doing something horrible to animals, not because we cared about the animals, but because we invented better ways that didn't rely on the exploitation of animals to do them. And when you contemplate that, then you ask yourself, well, how is it that we're going to move away from confining animals in these factory farms? And I don't think it's going to be because people are so moved by animal suffering. I wish that was true. I'm sure there will be some people who are moved to action by that. But it seems like most people are quite happy to eat meat and they don't want to know how animals are treated. So talk about the innovation. How did you come up with the idea of creating a plant-based meat? Well, it's certainly not my idea to create plant-based meat. People have been doing it for many hundreds of years. The very first record in human history of a recipe for plant-based meat goes back to more than 1,000 years ago in ancient China. And there's a recipe for mock lamb. Then you fast forward to, let's say, like the 1980s, and you have companies like Light Life and Tofurky that start making meat-like products that don't really mimic meat, but they're kind of meat-like, and, and they're really intended for vegetarians. Then you fast forward to about five years ago, when companies like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat start making plant-based meat that's not intended for vegetarians, but it's intended for meat consumers. And then the question is, can you even improve on that? And that's where the Better Meat Co. comes in, that we love those companies, Impossible, Beyond, they are wonderful companies. But they're relying on plants. And what we do at the Better Meat Co. is rely not on plants and not on animals. We rely on microscopic fungi. And we can make really delicious protein products that taste like meat without the need to do all the processing of plants that you need to do right now to make plant-based meat. Instead, we can use fermentation to convert microscopic fungi into foods that look and taste like meat. So your average consumer is somebody who likes the feel, the taste of meat and wants that same experience, but without the animal and without just taking plants. It's 
grown with rhizos? Rhizo is the name that we call our what's a mycoprotein. So that's protein made from fungi. And in effect, if you think about how a, a cow eats grass and converts it into a steak, our little microscopic fungi eat corn or they eat potatoes and they convert it into something that looks like a steak. Except a cow, you have to feed for more than a year. Whereas our little microscopic fungi, we feed for less than one single day. And they can go from being inoculated in a fermenter to harvest in less than one day. Wow. So give me a visual. When you're saying you're taking these rhizos, are they in like big vats? Think about the idea like a beer brewery. So in a beer brewery, you have microorganisms, or call them like brewer's yeast. Correct. And you feed them sugar, and they eat that sugar, and then in the fermentation process, they convert sugar into alcohol. That's how you get beer or wine. Instead, though, we're not using brewer's yeast. We use a different type of microorganism, but they eat sugar. And they convert that sugar into something that looks like meat. And that's the real process. So imagine a beer brewery where you're brewing not alcohol, but you're brewing meat. That's what it looks like. I grew up as a vegetarian. We are multi-generational vegetarians, probably for the last 15 generations or so. But I don't advocate that people become vegetarians unless they're committed to understanding how to balance their meals. They cannot get a balanced meal by eating a cheese pizza on a regular basis. What are the nutrients in the Better Meat Company? Yeah, great point, Vidya. So cheese pizza is not a healthy thing to eat, as you can imagine, uh, even if it is uh, not made with meat. So on the other hand, what we make is a whole food. It's a whole mycoprotein that on its own has more protein than eggs, more iron than beef, more potassium than bananas, more fiber than oats, and it naturally contains vitamin B12, which is typically not found in plant products. So this is a real superfood that we can make and manufacture without the need for, to use animals, and yet you get something that is actually better for you than the animal products that people are typically eating, and it doesn't have saturated fat or cholesterol. The B12 component kind of surprised me because as vegetarians, if you don't have a balanced meal, you could be eating regular meals, but if it's not balanced with the right kind of pulses, lentils, vegetables, you very easily will be deficient in B12 and the other Bs, the B-complex. So do they have the B-complex too or just the B12s? Yes, they do. And the issue that you're referring to is a very important one. B12 is typically only found in certain animal products. It is typically not found in plant products. And one of the benefits of what we at the Better Meat Co. are doing is producing a product that because it is the product of microbial fermentation as opposed to plants, during that microbial fermentation, our organism is producing B12 on its own. And so we can have a product that actually contains vitamin B12 without animals. And that is a real important part of what we're doing. So it would taste like meat? It does taste like meat, yes. How do you simulate that taste? We can take the the mycelium, which is like a mycoprotein, that has a very meat-like texture, and then you can add yeast extract to it to make it taste like meat. I would like your product, but I am not used to the taste of meat. Would you be able to make a product? I mean, your product sounds fascinating. Video. what the problem is that for people who are lifelong vegetarians like yourself who don't like meat, you may not like it. But for people who really enjoy eating meat, for them, it's a great product. 
So I may not like it because of the texture and the taste. Yeah, it's like meat. Would you enjoy eating meat? Probably not. You've spent your whole life never eating meat. Yeah, you know, it's hard to start that new habit. So you harvest every day? Well, we're not running a full-scale commercial plant. We run a pilot plant that we're primarily conducting R&D at. So we're not trying to maximize production here at this facility, but we will. We will build a full-scale commercial production facility where we will be harvesting every single day and creating a river of our mycoprotein to flow through the food industry to help reduce the food industry's reliance on animals. So you said about a thousand years ago, the Chinese made plants-based meat. Yes. Is your process similar to that or is it different? No. Yeah, what the Chinese did was they took a combination of wheat protein and soy protein. And what they did was combine that to make like a mock lamb. And that product is actually not that dissimilar to the way that plant-based meat was made through the 1980s and 90s. Starting around the 90s, we, meaning humans, did start figuring out how to texturize plant proteins to make them even more meat-like. And then starting around like 2010 or 2015, we started getting even better at texturizing and flavoring those products to make them even more meat-like. But what we're doing is not relying on plants, which is what the Chinese were doing. It's relying on microscopic fungi. So when I go to a Chinese restaurant and they serve me mock duck in their vegetarian section, is that the same thing? or It's actually not that dissimilar to what was done a thousand years ago. And that doesn't taste like meat at all, actually. I don't think it's fooling many people. I actually like it. I think it tastes good. But I don't know that many people eat it thinking that it's going to be identical to meat. Yes. I understand the importance of your product and how important it is for the planet. How different is your food from uh, processed food? Something that is processed, like our cereals in the morning that we eat. The cereal is generally not a whole food, right? So if you're going to consume certain foods that are made from corn or from wheat, oftentimes they'll have like extracts from those foods. Ours is a whole food. We're not extracting it. We're not isolating it. We're not fractionating it. Ours is a whole food that you can enjoy that has a naturally meat-like texture. So those cereals are far more processed, frankly, than what we make. The simplest solution that I see is make everybody switch to a plant-based diet. Do you think that would be too difficult? I would be very thrilled for people wanting to eat a plant-based diet. That's how I eat. I think it's fantastic. My wife is a plant-based cookbook author, so I'm all for it. I think it's fantastic. At the same time, we have to play the cards as they are dealt. And the cards that have been dealt are that humanity wants to eat meat. I mean, that's just the way it is. I don't like it. I'm not saying I want it that way, but that's what people want. And as soon as they start getting more money in their pockets, they start buying more meat. And that's the reality. What generally increases meat consumption is increased wealth. And what generally decreases meat consumption is uh, less wealth. And we want humanity to become wealthier. We want people to escape from poverty and enter the middle class. But we need to supply ways to complete that desire that people have for meat without so many problems associated with it. It's kind of like saying, you know, look, when people enter the middle class, they start they start emitting more fossil fuels, right? Or more greenhouse gas emissions because of their increased use of fossil fuels. And that's a problem. And so can we make refrigerators that don't run on fossil fuels? Can we get cars that don't run on fossil fuels? Can we make meat that doesn't involve animals? That's the real question. Take a serving of beef and a serving of the better meat companies, beef substitute, would the nutritional values be equivalent? 
Uh, well, ours would be better for you because it does not have cholesterol. It wouldn't have saturated fat. It wouldn't have antibiotic residues. It wouldn't have involved animal suffering. It would have involved far fewer greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, it's just a better food for you. And beef has zero grams of fiber, whereas our food has lots of fiber in it. And so if you think about it, you know, nobody is protein deficient. There's not one person you've ever met, most likely, who's protein deficient. In America, way more protein on average than we need. But what we are is fiber. Fiber deficient. Nine out of 10 Americans don't get enough fiber. If you're eating meat, you're getting no fiber. Uh, fiber is absent from animals because animals have skeletons. That's what holds us up. We have skeletons. Whereas uh, plants don't have skeletons, so they have fiber that holds them up. And so you end up getting fiber from eating plants, not from eating beef. And so what most people are deficient in is fiber, not protein. And you don't need all that saturated fat and cholesterol and so on. So our product is better for you. But in terms of comparable nutritional values, are they the same? Like I get so many grams of protein, I get so many grams of other vitamins. And If you were eating our product on its own, it's a little bit less protein, but it's more iron and it's more fiber and it's more potassium and it's better for you in general. Now we come to the cost because it has to be comparable to the beef or at least less than that. How expensive do you envisage the better beat companies needs to be. The products that we're making now, Vidya, are approximately the same price as beef. We're not yet at chicken prices, which are much cheaper, but we aim to be there. Our goal is to get down that far. How about if you compare it to organic meats? Would your prices, even for the chicken, would that be? We're cheaper than like an organic grass-fed product right now. Has there been a lot of VC funding in these industries, these innovations? Yes, the big companies in this space are pretty much all VC funded. Do you have VC funding at this point? We do, yes. That is an important component of this business model. We wouldn't be capable of doing the R&D that is necessary for us to make our products if we didn't have uh, venture capital funding that was betting on our success. Our investors have actually been fantastic for us. They have helped us not just with funding, but they've really helped to guide us to be more effective than we would have been without them. So to be honest with you, Vidya, I, I found that our investors are a lot more than just the capital that they provide, that they actually do some really important things for us for introductions, guidance, and, and more. When will the better meat company products hit the market? Well, some of our products are already in the market. We are a B2B ingredients company, so we sell to companies like Purdue Farms, and they have products in the market that contain our ingredients today. Those are in thousands of supermarkets. But the mycoprotein that we've been talking about that we create via fermentation here in Sacramento, we are hoping that we can bring those to market within the next year or so, but we need to increase our capacity. We need to, right now, we can't produce enough in order to meet the demand. So we need to be able to produce a lot more than we can produce right now. This is, has been such a fascinating journey, especially for me as a vegetarian, to learn about the Better Meat Company, the innovation, and how wholesome the product can be. Thank you so much, Paul, for coming on Mindful Businesses. Vidya, it was my pleasure. I love talking with you. Thank you for all that you're doing to create a more sustainable future for the business community. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Mindful Businesses hosted and produced by Vidya Ayer. We would love to hear from you. Send us a voice note with your questions or comments to mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send an email to info 
at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Theme music composed by Tatum Gale. Our marketing assistant is Caitlin Milligan. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pasricha. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.